Welcome to Booking a Pint. In this episode, Michael Evan, James Reed, and myself interview L.E. Modisette Jr., author of the Recluse series. We discuss his long career, the economy of fantasy novels, and the important things. Like what would you do to prove a fantasy author wrong? Welcome back to Book and a Pint. Uh, today we are very, very uh, excited to be joined by uh, the amazing L.E. Modisette Jr., author of so many sci-fi fantasy series. Uh, the Saga of Recluse, uh, probably the one that he is most well-known for, as well as the Imager Portfolio, the Spell Song Cycle, the Korean Chronicles. And now he's back with uh, the beginning of a new series, uh, Grand Illusion with the first book, Isolate, just recently released. Lee, welcome yep. to Book and Applied. Thank you. I'm um, glad to be here. Great. We're uh, really glad to have you. I will uh, also take the time uh, to welcome our, uh, as you know, uh, people listening, uh, James Jacobs and I are the regular hosts, but we're joined today uh, by JMD Reed, James Reed, who is our special guest host, uh, helping out with this interview. James, how are you doing? Doing good. How are you doing? Doing really good. So, uh, Lee, congratulations on uh, a brand new series uh, with with so many uh, novels and so much amazing work uh, in your repertoire. It's it's quite amazing to see the start of something brand new. Uh, so, tell us a little bit about the Grand Illusion series uh, for uh, people that are listening. Well. It's something that I've really wanted to do for a long time. As some people do know, I spent almost 20 years working in national politics in Washington, D.C. And one of the things that's always bothered me or concerned me is that so often people get politics wrong. Um, there are a lot of illusions about it. Our current media generally overlooks, shall we say, the nitty-gritty of politics. And I thought it'd be fun to write a fantasy based on, especially in the first book, not people who were politicians, but people who were staffers for politicians, and make some observations about politics in a little bit different way. Um, and that was the start of um, Isolated and the first of three books in The Grand Illusion. That was actually my next question, because you've done so many uh, very, very long running series. I mean, even uh, Imager Portfolio, which which, you know, isn't as long as, as Saga of Recluse, obviously, but is still very long. I was I was going to ask you if this was another series that was planned to go on uh, as long as some of those. And you just answered that question. So we're looking at a new trilogy. Yeah, that's for sure. I may write more books in it later. I don't know. But the first three books are complete. One's been published. Um, Counselor will be out next August. And Contrarian, which is the third book, will be out sometime in 2023. I don't have a firm publication date. That's amazing. And I mean, I, I have read uh, half of it. It's, I mean, I'm, I don't have a lot of reading time, but uh, I always uh, am very quick to uh, jump into your new books, uh, especially first in series when they come out um, and it's, it's really excellent so far, so I'm really enjoying it. Uh, 
just to uh, to let you know, Booking a Pint uh, is a show that uh, when we bring on an established author such as yourself, we really want to uh, make sure that we're asking questions that our community uh, will uh, be able to appreciate to get into an author's work. So some of these questions you may have been asked before, but I also think that they're necessary to uh, get our community to find out more about your work and find out more about uh, I guess what makes you tick as an author. So uh, I want to start with this. You've been writing for a very, very long time, um, and you've written a lot of books. And obviously, uh, you know, you've you've also uh, had a lot of success uh, on tour, uh, both for fantasy and sci-fi. When did you know you wanted to be a writer? Um, <laughs> and, and and what's uh, what led you to the decision to, to get heavily into uh, working on and publishing novels? I never planned, actually, to be a science fiction author. I mean, that sounds absolutely absurd at my age, but at the time, I didn't. Um, I was much more interested in poetry. I studied poetry. I wrote poetry from the time I was 15 until, well, I still write it, but that's all I wrote for almost 15 years. And I never got any further than very small literary magazines, perhaps because I'm rather a traditionalist in terms of poetry. That is to say, I happen to believe in rhyme and meter, and I'm not into verbal visual images and little else. But in any case, um, I was almost 30, actually, I was 29, uh, when a friend basically said, your poetry isn't going anyplace. And you've read science fiction since you were who knows how old? Why don't you try and write a science fiction story? And I did. I wrote a science fiction story. And since I wasn't in the science fiction community, I just read it. I sent it off to the magazine that I subscribed to, which was Analog. I don't know if that was arrogance or just stupidity, but I sent it off and I got a rejection letter, which is not unexpected, except no. the rejection letter had a kick to it, which it said, this is almost good enough to publish, and it was by Ben Bova, except you made a terrible mess out of page 13. If you can fix that, I'll look at it again. I fixed it, sent it back, and Ben bought it. I thought, yeah, I'm an author. Uh -uh. Didn't quite work that way. Over the next roughly five years, I wrote close to 100 stories and submitted them all. Over that time period, exactly five got published. And then I sent off another one to Ben, and he sent me back a very nice letter which said, don't send me any more stories. I swallowed and read the next paragraph, which said, you're clearly a novelist trying to cram novels into short stories, and it won't work. Go write a novel. After you do that, I'll talk to you about anything else. Well, when you've only sold five stories out of 100, you're not real enthused about writing a novel. But I figured I didn't have any choice. So over the next roughly two and a half years, I wrote a novel. And then I started sending it off because I didn't have an agent. I didn't know anybody. And I got rejected by pretty much every editor in the field until I got to Jim Bain, who was then at the head of uh, Ace Books. And he said, I'd like this. I'd like to publish it. He kept telling me that for a year before he sent it back to me. And the letter that came with it is, this is good enough to publish. 
I can't publish it. It's just not my kind of book. But you might try David Hartwell. He's got a new out startup over at Simon & Schuster. It's called Timescape. Well, nobody else is publishing me. So I sent the manuscript to David Hartwell at Timescape. And he bought it. And I thought, whoa, at least I got somewhere. And things were looking up, except roughly five months after Timescape published The Fires of Paratime, Simon & Schuster folded the Timescape imprint. Well, the editors who'd rejected me before still weren't buying me. But David suggested that a former assistant of his, um, John Douglas, was over at um, Avon Books. So I sent my next novel to John Douglas at Avon. And he bought it. And he paid half what I got from Timescape. And about a year after, not even a year after it was published, he called me up and said he couldn't publish the third book. And I asked him why. And he said, because the parent company of Avon at that time, uh, it skips my mind at this particular moment, froze all submissions for three years. But he declined to exercise the option, which left me free to try and sell the next book, except I didn't know who was going to buy it. At which point, David Hartwell called me up and said, um, I'm with this small startup outfit. I can't offer you much money, but we'd sure like to publish your next book. So about for about half of what I sold the second book for, I sold it to this startup outfit. The good news was that that startup outfit happened to be Tor Books. And that's how I got into writing novels. Long story, but that's true. Wow. And you've been with Tor, um, well, pretty much ever since, I would imagine. Um, since 1983. Wow. That's awesome. Um, so obviously you're, you're, you've, you're most, I would say, I mean, there are, I've, I've enjoyed the Imager portfolio and other books of yours uh, equally as much. But I would say, and I don't think this is uh, wrong to say, that you're probably most well-known for your um, saga of Recluse. Um, you had, I've heard you mention uh, the fact that you, you originally started out mainly as a sci-fi writer. Um, totally. But then uh, Saga of Recluse is very much a fantasy series. Now, I know that there is, it, is, it is a fantasy series, but it is also steeped in science fiction. Um, what made you make the switch, though, to, um, from, from considering yourself mainly uh, a science fiction writer to jumping into something that for all intents and purposes, at least uh, from a marketing standpoint, is a very long running epic fantasy series. Um, Shall we say it was a challenge <clears throat> during this sure. period, this during this period when I was writing science fiction, David, of course, was my editor from that first and third book all the way until his death. But I was not part of the science fiction community. And in the, Late 80s, David called me up and said, you have got to go to a convention. You're a name on a page. Nobody knows who you are. And I won't give you the whole thing, but I ended up going to the first convention that was anywhere near to me just to get David off my back. And that happened to be Baldicon. And it was 30 miles up the pike. And at that time, I was a single parent with four small children. And um, I just wanted to get it done and not have an editor mad at me. So I went to this convention and I was pretty naive about things. I ended up on a panel discussing economics and politics in science fiction and fantasy. And I thought, I'm an economist by training. Um, I'm in politics. 
I write science fiction. What can go wrong? Well, it turned out that I was on that panel because no science fiction writer, I suspect, wanted to be on this with four high-powered fantasy authors. And I was a little shy at that convention because first convention, I didn't know what to expect. So I pretty much kept my mouth shut. I kept my mouth shut so much that all of a sudden, the moderator turned to me and said, Lee, you haven't said a word. What do you think about the way most fantasy authors handle economics and politics? Well, I happen to be borderline Asperger's. And if you ask me a question that I'm not prepared for, I will answer it as honestly and as quickly as I possibly can. And I gave an honest and quick answer. Now, you've got to remember this was the late 80s. But my answer was, from what I can tell, most of them don't know squat about either. The room gets rather quiet. And because I'm borderline Asperger's, I'm going to talk to fill the void. So I start talking about the fact that you cannot have 2,000, 20,000, or 10,000 armed knights on a side, the way a noted author does, not in a medieval culture, because it takes 1,000 acres to 2,000 acres, depending on the land, to support one armed knight. And if you've got 10,000 on a side, you've got countries you're not going to hold together with horses. Room gets quieter. Then I start talking about all of these, back in those days, quests with no visible means of support. And there's only been one in human history. It was called the Children's Crusade. And they all ended up either enslaved or dead. By this time, among the fantasy authors at least, I'm persona non grata. And there were mutters to the fact that this is a science fiction author. He couldn't write a fantasy if his life depended on it. Well, the name Modest had is either French Huguenot or Old English. We don't know which, but most of my ancestry is Irish. And there's one thing most people know. You don't tell the Irish they can't do something. And I thought, I can write a fantasy. I can make one that's got believable economics, appropriate technology, logical magic, and still be a fantasy. And so I wrote The Magic of Recluse. I did not tell David I was writing it. I just wrote it. And I sent it off to him. And his first reaction was an immediate phone call saying, you did what? And I said, before you reject it, just read it. And uh, he did. And he called me back and said, it's actually pretty good. We'll publish it. And that's how it all started. And I had no plans for a sequel. And all of a sudden, David called me up and said, well, what's the second book going to be? Second book? So I really had to sort of scramble (laughs) to figure out where I was going to go with it. Um, and right now I just finished the 23rd recluse book all because of a challenge. Well, congratulations. I did have a question, uh, with regards to that series, but guys, I, I feel like I've been talking a lot. Do you guys, um, have a question for Lee that you wanted to get in first? Um, well, I'm just curious cause I've read when I was in high school, I read like the first six books of recluse, uh, and I enjoyed them. They're really good, but you know, then I graduated from high school and, you know, life gets crazy and suddenly you don't have time to read. But um, I was just curious, it's like the series really kind of jumps around in time, but yep. I don't recall, like I read the first book and then you're jumping back what Towers of Sunset is a couple hundred years before that, maybe a thousand years. I don't recall. It's been 20 years since I read it, but um, I just, I, I remember like, I felt like there was a cohesion to it that felt like planned. So it's a little surprising hearing you like I didn't have plans for any sequel well, or so, yeah. Okay. I'll answer that one in a different way. 
Sure. Because of who I am and because I've studied history a lot, I can't write any book, even if it's a standalone, without visualizing some back history to the culture. So even though Reckless was written as a standalone, there's a bunch of historical references in that book. And basically, um, as I went, kept going with the saga, I had a general, if you will, outline of the history of this world, not necessarily all the details, but a general aspect of it. I had, because I'm, I don't know, you might call literally, literally OCD, I had uh, maps, I had cultural, cultural ideas, uh, a, couple of, a couple of them of them that show up in the magic of recluse i sort of buried and there's one mistake in there that i just sort of don't mention too much although i later turned it into a joke um i just tend to think in overall patterns like that and so i fill in the pieces of the patterns where i think they'll fit within the history okay yeah i was just curious because i you know i write fantasy so it's always you know fun to like uh talk to other fantasy authors how they do their thing Especially world building, I really like world building. It's, it's kind of why I like fantasy is creating the worlds. So, you know, I always rather like that about Recluse how it, you know, it has this history and it seemed very cohesive as you're jumping around. It's not, um, it doesn't feel like like the history of the world only existed for the current moment, uh, for the where the books are sitting. You know, that you get well, with some fantasy. Yeah, but yeah. I, I well, I try, I tried very much with all of them to enrich the history of the world with each book in different ways. Um, I think I've been relatively successful in doing it, but I'm not sure you're ever as objective about your own work as you could be. Well, that's very true. Yeah. I, uh, I had to approve my audio books and listening to my narrator read them because he was live streaming them. And I was, I was wincing all the time because it was like my first novel I wrote. And I'm just like, why, why did I write it that way? Or, did I really just use the same word twice in the paragraph and my, and it got through It just so like the people listening to it, really enjoying it. And I'm just like sitting here wincing going like, Oh, this could have <laughs> been written so much better. Um, I, I had probably one advantage, which we haven't mentioned in the sense that all of the jobs I had before I ever started writing um, fiction dealt with writing things from writing poetry, even though I was a Navy pilot, I ended up being the administrative officer. Um, I was hired in politics, not because I knew was that great shakes at politics. It was because I could write almost anything, speeches, testimony. Um, I designed a computerized letter system, one of the first on Capitol Hill. Um, so I dealt with a lot of writing. And then in the consulting business, I was writing about a heck of a lot of things from foreign trade to economics and ecology and environmental things. So before I was ever published, I'd probably been writing professionally or semi-professionally close to 20 years. And I think that helps. That it does. I uh, did not have that background. I, uh, I delivered pizzas for a while. <laughs> I was a paratransit driver. <laughs> So, Lee, I actually wanted to ask you about your work history because I was trying to do my uh, research before I brought you on today. And I did see on your Wikipedia page, your early life lists all those careers that you had. I was actually really excited to hear you mention that they all sort of led into community. Um, I knew 
even though I wanted to be a poet, I knew poets, at least no poets since Robert Frost had ever made a living at it. Mm. So when I was in college, I had a double major in economics and political science. I figured it might be useful for something, and it did turn out to be that way. But I got sidetracked because there was a war going on, i.e. Vietnam, and I really did not want to be a grunt. So in my sophomore year in college, I signed up for a program that doesn't exist called the ROC program, Reserve Officer Candidate. And when I graduated, I was commissioned as an ensign. I was shipped off to assault boats, and I hated assault boats. So I did a really stupid thing. I volunteered for flight training in the middle of a war where the aviators had one of the greatest casualty rates. Not, technically speaking, the brightest move. Um, I did manage to survive that. I ended up being a search, search and rescue pilot off of carriers, which is little, uh, a little, not a lot, but a little less dangerous than flying jets over Vietnam. Um, and I survived it, but I knew I was not the world's greatest pilot. I was definitely competent, but I was not, uh, a Chuck Yeager. And so after the, uh, war or after the Navy and I decided that, I didn't really want a second tour. Actually, I said I didn't want a second tour. They didn't say anything. Um, I found myself without a job because they just, when I wouldn't re-up, I was out. I made plans for that. So I got a job as an industrial market research analyst. And that is possibly the most boring, dull job one can imagine. Because my job was to forecast the sales patterns of compressed air filters, regulators, lubricators, and valves. Uh, yeah, that sounds really exciting. Um, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't last at that very well. I lasted. Yeah. Almost, I lasted a year. Then I picked another career, which was not exactly wonderful for somebody who's borderline Asperger's. I tried to sell real estate. I sold one house in a year. Since that didn't work out terribly well, I'd gotten involved in politics on the grassroots level, and uh, I volunteered. It's a long story, and I won't tell it all, but I volunteered to help a candidate who I thought was a marvelous speaker, but he sure as heck didn't have the best speech to speak. And I, I offered my assistance several times. He rejected them, and then his campaign manager hired me. And um, what happened was he won the election, and he decided I might be valuable writing things for him in Congress. So he offered me a position as a legislative assistant. I took it because being employed in Washington, D.C. was better than being unemployed in Denver. And since I had a wife and four kids, being employed was important. And that's how I got into politics. So other than the politics is obviously that very much has influenced your writing and like your, your newest trilogy, right, Grand Illusion, you said it was all about the staffers. But which of those many careers do you think you've pulled from the most as far as writing your stories and your characters, if any? I can't separate that out. I really can't. Okay. I was just curious. Uh, I mean, they all, they have literally all played a part in it, pl- played a part in it. Um, I mean, <laughs> I think... Being a pilot certainly influenced my science fiction because a helicopter pilot's probably the closest thing to a space pilot that's within the atmosphere. Yeah. Because helicopters maneuver in three dimensions, whereas no matter what the jet jockeys tell you, jets really don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So I want to I want to get back to um, just a little bit back to uh, Recluse and the the success that you had uh, early on uh, with Tor with that book. Now, so you've got um, a successful uh, fantasy novel, and you've got characters in that novel. Um, so, and you you've actually uh, done something relatively risky uh, in this series, which is rather than focusing on one timeline um, and a set of characters that people can enjoy all the way through, you jump around. Well, we've already mentioned that you jump around times, but you also jump around with uh, different uh, characters. Um, you 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 do something where you'll show things. There are no real. Uh, protagonists or antagonists. You've got your order mages and chaos mages. Uh, some books are clearly uh, from the perspective of one side, and some are from the other. And you're showing, uh, you know, good and bad points in both. Um, what made you decide to do this? What made you decide to um, to set everything up in uh, duologies or trilogies? Um, I mean, I, I know that the the newest. Um, one has gone on a little bit longer. I think maybe five books. Uh, when um, it's all over. Um, there's no. There's only one character who's had five books, and that's the middle books in the in the Imager portfolio. That was meant to be a trilogy. The story just got too big to do it in a trilogy, and the editors said, "Just do as many books as it takes." Um, other than that, so far I have not written more than three books about any one character. And as you pointed out, sometimes in Reckless, there are, I think, three books, four books, where there's only one book about a character. Right. Um, I like to think of Reckless as, in a way, the fictionalized history of a world. And you get parts of this culture and that culture. It's one of the few fantasy series where you can see the rise of one civilization and then its fall, the rise of another one, um, who's, what cultures stay around, what cultures vanish. Um, I guess that's just my historical background. I just sort of see things in that sense. I also don't like to do really long, prolonged stories about people because it seems to me that in most stories, people have, if you will, crisis points in their life, but they don't have crisis points every year or every three months forever and ever and forever. Um, people's emotions don't just don't survive that. And I find, I find that unrealistic. Now, a lot of people like to read it, but for me, that's too unrealistic t for me to write it that way. I don't know if that answers the question, but that's the way I feel about it. Yeah, no, it totally doesn't. Actually, um, I had read an article that you had written. I think you might have written it for my blog a while back, or you had sent it to me from your blog to use on my blog, which I found really fascinating. So nowhere in your books uh, are you going to find it in your, well, at least up to now, um, are you going to find a dragon? Um, and I know dragons are obviously very, very popular in fantasy fiction, uh, but you had a really interesting reason uh, sort of on this idea of um, realism and believability uh, that explained the reason why you would never have a dragon in uh, one of your novels. Would you be able to uh, expand on that a little bit? I don't know if I could expand on it, but my general belief is the biggest monsters are people. I don't need to invent a, a dragon to have some really bad things happen. People will do it all by themselves. Um, I don't know if that's what I said in, <laughs> in that well, blog. I think you said that, but, uh, but there was also something that had to do with um, 
with the oh, size oh, of the dragon. Oh, and, okay. And, I remember that. Yes. I did some actual some mechanics on it. And you might be able to have a dragon perhaps the size of an A4, given the weight, wingspan, and what have you. But most of the dragons that people create wouldn't work that way. And I'm big on energy. And I don't know how you could make a dragon that would actually function, even with magic, because the amount of magic energy it would take to do it just really wouldn't work out. And that's why I'm not big on monsters of that sort, at least another reason why. Yeah, no, I remember that. And, and I mean, one of the things that uh, I enjoy, and I, I, I also enjoy a lot of uh, fantasy that does, um, and I actually write fantasy as well, that is all about complete and utter, I write, it's satirical stuff that is complete and utter belief suspension type of stuff. But what I've always enjoyed about your work is that realism, is, um, you know, being able to uh, see what people do uh, and the conversations that they have around the home, uh, your use of, of food um, and meals as part of life is something that uh, has always really drawn me to your work. Um, well, it, I think one of the things about that, Mike, is that when do people talk? You generally don't get conversations about something beyond work at work, unless it's at a coffee break or at lunch. You don't, I mean, you just have to think about when people really talk about things. And especially in a low-tech culture, about the only time they really have time to do it is at meals. Um, because I've seen what farm and ranch life is like. Um, you often don't have a lot of time. And in the military, the same thing's true, especially, of course, my background is as a pilot, but in essence, you're not talking when you're flying. I learned that the hard way. And um, there are realistic places for conversations and there are unrealistic places for conversations. And conversations are where people get their ideas and what motivates people. Generally speaking, action is, in the beginning at least, spurred by conversation, not the other way around. If you happen to be on the defense, yes, your conversation is spurred by somebody else attacking. But that attack comes from from somebody else's conversational reasoning. I want that port. I want to stop this. Um, conversation is really the basis of action in most cases. Not necessarily reaction, but action. Right. Yeah. No. I um, that was I I I kind of got that sense. Uh, and enjoyed those conversations, uh, especially uh, the way you you integrate families and uh, you know the the hierarchy of of um, you know parents and children uh, continuing on uh, in in the business realm of things, the family uh, the family trades and stuff like that. You've uh, done a really good good uh, job at, at at showing that and almost making uh, the reader feel like they're right there, despite the fact that it obviously uh, takes place in a, in a very different time in a very different world. Um, do you pay attention at all to um, uh, modern, uh, like indie work and indie, any of the indie fantasy that's coming out or indie sci-fi that's coming out? I know uh, you're incredibly prolific and I would imagine you're writing all the time. Um, like, what would you say uh, are some of the, the, the authors or books that you've been uh, discovering lately that you would maybe uh, be able to endorse or recommend? Actually, 
I have to say, for the first time literally in my entire life, I have not read a book or a science fiction or fantasy book or seen anything along those lines in the last six months. I mean, and that's in over 60 years. It's the first time that's happened. Um, part of it is uh, it's been, should we say, a little disruptive both professionally and professionally for my wife. And basically, given all of the disruptions, it's just been a struggle to write. Forget about reading. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, it's been uh, an interesting uh, couple of years, for sure. Uh, it almost feels like like science fiction in and of itself. Yeah, <laughs> i i would ha- I would have to say that. Um, and I am not, for better or worse, I'm not. I've seen bits and pieces, and I've read a few things here and there, but I am not as enthralled with an awful lot of what I've seen on the science fiction front, or I've seen more innovation in the fantasy side than in the science fiction side. I mean, but not really recently. I mean, no, I'm just going to have to pass on that one. (laughs) It's a good political answer. Well, no, it's just. No, I get it. No time. Right now, it's it's no time. I mean, yeah. I mean, probably you know there are a couple of books that I read recently that I, I thought were interesting, like Fonda Lee's Jade series. Um, Excellent stuff. Uh, and uh, I can't think of her name, but the, offhand, uh, but the the one the woman who's doing the shall we say the fictionalized takeoff on Chinese history. Um, and her name skips me. I like I read the first two books, but. Never had a chance to get back to the third one. Um, or, I'm trying to think of who it is. Yeah, I'm so. We'll, we'll have to retouch it. Fonda Lee's. Uh, I know Fonda Lee's, but this. Yeah, this, yeah that's excellent. That's a, that's uh, one of the best things that came out of Orbit the year that uh, that they put out a whole bunch of new authors was that series, and I had reached out to her and interviewed her as well because I thought that was a, a phenomenal series. Um, but you're still despite. I, uh, sorry, I'm. Oh, yeah, no, I was just saying, like, uh, when I started writing, like, heavily in 2013, I just, I lost track of everything in the fantasy, like, what's really coming out in the fantasy world, and I just didn't have time, you know, you get lost in your own stuff, and uh, all that time, like, you know, because I was working, so all the time I normally spend reading, you know, I decided to, you know, spend writing. Well, all I was going to say is, I haven't stopped reading, I've stopped reading fiction. I mean, I still read the science publications and the environmental publications and the political and economic publications, but I haven't read much fiction. Okay. Valid. Fair enough. Yeah, I know. I, uh, it's just, yeah, just writing, I don't know, writing took over my life, which I I love, but maybe it's not the most healthy thing in the world because I probably spent too much time doing it. But, um, you know, it's, uh, but yeah, there's a lot of good stuff out there and I just wish I had the time to read it all. And which I had the time to write all most of my books too, but uh, I think it's I think it's great that you're still going strong at uh, you know after all these years that you haven't like burned out or ran out of ideas or anything. The ideas aren't aren't the the problem. Um, I don't have quite as much endurance as I used to have. Um, there were times when I was writing twelve fourteen hours a day. Um, now it's more like seven or eight. <laughs> <laughs> That's still not bad, honestly. Yeah, no, I know. I, was, I know a lot of know a lot of young authors that would kill to have that much time to write. Yeah, yeah. No, I was gonna say too when you said that you um, that you didn't have as much time to write, and, I, and I'm thinking, wow, you're still going 
pretty strong to me with the starting of a new series and then Quantum Shadows last year. And uh, but there were like at least a couple of Recluse books and then another one that you said you just finished. So it st- still sounds like a ton of stuff to look forward to. Well, right now I'm not quite averaging two books a year. In the late 90s, I was doing close to three. And for about 25 years, I averaged two and a half books a year. But I'm not quite doing it quite that fast now. I think for most average writers, one book a year is considered a victory. So I think you're still definitely killing it. Yeah. And it's amazing that, um, I mean, with traditional publishing, a lot of times um, you can only put out one book every year or two years. So the fact that uh, with Tor, you're able to you're able to release multiple books a year. That's amazing, too. It's it's gotten more difficult even even with Tor, which is why my books are scheduled out as far as 2023 right yeah. now. The whole there's so much printing going on because everyone's stuck at home that there's just been such a spike in needing to print everything. It's also supply chain issues with paper for the printers, so it's probably yeah. harder to schedule everything. Yeah, well, my last book was delayed almost a month because of the printing issues. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, my, my roommate's business, like, he has empty shelves because he can't get in product fast enough. Like, the moment he gets a shipment in, he sells it all. And he sells, like, model kits and stuff. So it's like, you know, that stuff just boomed with COVID because everyone needs something to do at home. And so he's just like, he's like, I have, like, all this money, he says, and I can't buy anything with it. And he's really frustrated by it. Well, at least we've got the ebooks. books yeah, There's always ebooks. Although I know some traditional publishers are like the ebooks get delayed because they want to release at the same time as the print book. Oh, they, so. they, they delay delayed my ebook, even though they could have published it until they got the print book. <laughs> yeah. So, um, while we're on the subject of, um, prolificacy, I guess, um, what's next for you? Because, uh, I know that, uh, isolate just came out. Well, relatively just, and I, I've already seen, uh, the sequel, uh, which, Count, if yeah, I'm right, it's called Count, Counselor. Counselor. That'll be out in August. Oh, wow. The third book will be out sometime in 2023. I don't have a hard date on it. It's in production. And that's called Contrarian. And um, I just finished the first draft of another recluse book. And I won't say too much about it because until the publisher agrees to buy it and the editors and everybody agree on the title... I don't want to give it, come out with the title, but um, that'll probably be in 2024 or late are 2023. You, are you good with coming up with titles or like sometimes you just can't figure out what to call your book? No, no, I know. Okay. I know what I want to call it. OK, but sometimes uh, and usually almost always my titles work out. I've been told that some of the people at tour look at the titles and say, what, why? And the people who've been there a little longer say something to the effect of, it seems to work so we don't mess with it. <laughs> Fair enough. Sometimes I, sometimes I write like almost half a novel before I can figure out even like a basic title for them sometimes. Well, know. that's that's one of the reasons, frankly, why even after all these years, I don't ask for or accept a contract until I've at least finished the first draft. Okay. Very good. Um, that takes a lot of pressure off because, okay. Yeah. You, you have like all three of these of your new series written, right? So you, 
Did you, so you wrote it all before you even sold it or no, I, you, okay. I, I said it was going to be a series. I didn't ask for the contract on the first book until I finished the first draft. They knew there were more books coming. I didn't get asked for a contract till the second book until I finished the first draft of it. Same for the third book. Um, since, since I've yeah. been with the same publisher for so many years and I'm known to be pretty dependable, they're happy with it. So am I. It sounds like a good arrangement. So I'm just curious. So you sold, you had, you had three separate contracts for the series and have a contract for the whole trilogy. You said book that, by book? Book by book. Okay. Um, as I said, it seems to work. Yeah. They're, they're happy. I'm happy. And uh, generally, it's I'm pretty close to when I tell them I'll deliver a book. Uh, the one I just finished, I had hoped to have finished by December, but I didn't get it finished until into end of January. Um, it's not I'm, that bad of a deadline to blow. Yeah, a month late is nothing in publishing, I'd say. I'm sure they uh, love that. Well, like, like I say, I've always pretty much met my self-imposed deadlines, so Tor is perfectly willing to let me do my thing. Makes sense. So do you, do you treat your writing like kind of like a nine-to-five job, or like you have like kind of a time that you're gonna you know start your writing every day, or? Um. Yes. But it doesn't end like a nine to five job. Right. Obviously. But I just was as just like you you're going like this day I'm going to spend this much time and usually like it's this no, it's just, my writing, you know, it's like every it's, it's every day. It's every day. I mean basically when I start varies a little bit by my wife's schedule. She's still a professor of voice at the university here. So um, when she leaves for her morning classes it's when I start, and that's usually anywhere from 8.30 to 9.30. And I basically go through the emails and all the administrative stuff. That usually takes 40 minutes to an hour, and then I write from that point on, um, sometimes till 6 or 7 at night, sometimes till 9 or 10 at night. Sandwich in. I do the grocery shopping and some of the errands because her schedule is as bad as mine. Uh, but I sort of sandwich those in. When it's convenient, just keep working on it. Yeah, I find if I don't treat it like a job, I will be super lazy. So like I need to start like at the same time every day, and just sort of like you know like I'm going to be just you know this is you know how I pay my bills, so I need to you know get at it every day. And plus, I love it. Not to say it's a chore, but uh, you know if I let myself get distracted, then nothing's going to get done. If you don't treat it like a job. That's kind of you telling yourself it's nothing. It's not important, right? You got to be serious about it or it's not something you're going to pay attention to. I guess maybe I am just a hard-boiled type A. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, I basically dress for work. Um, I don't wear the tie, but I wear the slacks, shirt, collared shirt and vest every day when I come down here to write. Does the vest help? Uh, I don't know if it it helps or hurts. It's just what I was used to. Okay, I'm just curious. And the other thing is that it's frankly useful because um, uh, I share my office with dogs, and it's much easier to just grab a leash and take them out if I've got a vest on. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's, that's actually good thinking. I wanted to uh, just sort of uh, this is something that I may have asked you. And you had given me, it was a written interview, I think, a long time ago. And I don't remember exactly what happened. But I do know that uh, I actually discovered your books in a bookstore. Um, 
when I from the Daryl K. Sweet, and I hope I'm getting his name right. Um, Daryl K. Sweet cover ratio. Yeah. You can uh, always recognize one on the bookshelf. Right, like I had read the wheel of the, I bought the wheel of time books and had got you know I had the whole series sitting on my bookshelf. I still haven't finished it, but it's all there. Um, and then I saw your books, and and um, that was kind of how I got into them, as I saw the covers, and they were you know similar covers to other books from tour that I had picked up. Um, I understand. I'm I to understand obviously that the, a lot of those those books are now discontinued, at least in the uh, paperback versions, and that you've decided to go with uh, a full rebranding. Uh, what, um, was it, what was it that kind of led to the, the decision to do that? Um, okay, it's not a full rebranding. They recovered the first three volumes in paperback. Uh, the Magic of Recluse, um, The Towers of the Sunset, and The Magic Engineer. As far as I know, there is no intent to redo the covers on any of the later books. Um, I suspect the idea was to get a younger and newer audience interested in them with more up-to-date covers. And I think they basically figured if you can't get them in the first three books, there's no point in doing rebranding the rest of them. <laughs> that's just my guess. You know, that's probably a good guess. That's why I started like the indie world. Like if you can hook them, they'll read book three, they'll tend to read your entire series. It's kind of the, the philosophy in the uh, the indie world like you'll you'll lose half with book you know on to book two and then any who tend to make it to book three tend to read through the entire series at that point because they're committed you know after three books right they like it you know you don't go that deep into a series if you don't like it right so, yeah i mean I, that that would be my guess i do know that there are no plans to rebrand beyond those first three books and interestingly enough if you put those three paperbacks together literally on a table it forms one picture oh wow i didn't know that yeah i have to i have to grab mine out and take a look at that i've i, I those are know. the those are the three reband rebranded books they're actually it's actually one picture which is split it was designed that way but it's it's one picture but they actually uh i've actually got a print of that whole picture <laughs> yeah i've been uh I've been having a difficult time. Like I want to own them all in paperback and I've been having a, a hard time finding a lot of the paperbacks. I mean, everything is available in ebook and obviously all the newer stuff is available in hardcovers and paperbacks, but there's a section of recluse that is, is really difficult to, to find. And I'm hoping that uh, those will go into print uh, again, one of these days. Yeah. No, my roommate, he spent, I think five, six years trying to get all the old ones in hardback. See, my roommate's a huge fan of yours. Like he's gonna all your books and hardback on his shelf, and uh, yeah, well, he, we would go to used bookstores to try to find like hardback copies of your books. You know that were like the yeah. first ones because you know we only we only had those like in the trad paperbacks. Yeah, well, I would be going to used bookstores looking for books that weren't beaten up. Like I could find you know versions that looked like they were dog-eared and, and you know brown paper and spines have been broken a hundred times but it's been a it's been a mission trying to find good condition uh paperbacks to complete my set and i've done okay i've i've, I've managed to find quite a few but i'm still not completely there yet i would love to just be able to and i it's always a risk to order anything used on amazon when it says condition excellent or condition very good because a lot of times that's um either the seller's opinion or the person that's you know what i mean um i used to do that and then i would get stuff that just looked 
like it was garbage. So I've stopped doing that. Well, there are a few books that you won't get on hardcover because roughly the first six books were never issued in hardcover. Not not on the Reckless series, but my first six science fiction books. The very first novel, which was The uh, Fires of Paratime, later reissued as The Time God, that had a science fiction book club hardcover, but Timescape never did it in hardcover. And um, then the three, well, the four ec- ecologic books never came out on hardcover, and neither did the three um, um, Forever Hero books. So there are about seven books were never issued in hardcover. I'm sure he knows that. But yeah, no, he's he's uh, got them on. They look nice on his bookshelf. But uh, yeah. Lee, I wanted to ask you, uh, well, I'm going to want to uh, let you tell everybody where they can find you online uh, and hope that a lot of our community that listens to this podcast will uh, check out your work because it's absolutely phenomenal and astounding in so many different ways. Uh, but uh, I like to ask this question, and I think uh, an author that has uh, a tenure as long as yours that you know has accomplished as much as you have would probably be able to help a number of people out with uh, an answer to this one. So if you could give one piece of advice to any uh, new and aspiring author out there trying to get into the business, uh, what would it be? That's really hard, but I guess the simplest one thing is, I don't know that there's one thing. I just said, I guess the thing that comes to mind is be yourself. Don't try to write to the market because if you can't sell what you are, you're not going to sell what you aren't. I don't know if I can put it any more succinctly than that. No, that's that's really a good. very good advice. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think you've got a, um, I think it's a, it's a fickle, first of all, there's so many books out there. Um, and I think, uh, a lot of times uh, readers can tell when an author doesn't have buy into their own work. Um, and uh, there's nothing more invigorating than, than reading a book uh, where you can just tell that the author is really passionate about their worlds, really passionate about their characters, um, and really coming from a genuine place in the writing. Um, you know, you can, you can tell a, a beach read. Um, now, there's, there are some okay beach reads, but... Um, but you can tell something that was kind of like you said, written to market um, a mile away when, when, when there's a, a lack of depth in, in pretty much anything and, and a whole bunch of inconsistencies. So, yeah, no, I think that's, uh, that's really definitely excellent advice. Um, another thing is, and I'm sure, uh, well, James uh, Reed, who's, who's interviewing his, um, I don't know, James, how many books have you written? I don't know, 30. Around yeah, around thirty books. So it's like I ghostwrite for I ghostwrite for a living too. So I've written far more other books for other people. So it's I think it's also important for people not to hold themselves to um, astronomical and impossible standards if they're not able to do that. Everybody has their own pace. Not everybody is gonna is gonna be a prolific writer that writes you know six to ten books a year and then or or writes them and then shelves them until they're released. So um, I well, think, I was gonna say I didn't write the book number of books I was writing when I had a full-time job. When I had a full-time job, the best I could do was about one book a year. Yeah, no, my, I have a friend. She's like, how do you write so much? And I'm like, I'm single and I have no life and no kids. And you're a, you're a married woman with three like teenage kids and health problems. Don't, you know, don't compare yourself to me because we have completely different, you know, circumstances and everyone's circumstances are different. Everyone's talents are different. 
everyone writes at different speeds. You know, you have to. I, I always tell people you got to judge. Um, don't compare yourself to other authors and where they're at. Compare yourself to where you are today versus where you were a year ago, five years ago. You know, that's I think a more healthy way to do things. But I could be wrong. No, I think that's actually absolutely true. Um, I laugh about the fact that I have no recollection of any popular culture from basically 1976 to 1990, because between job, kids, and writing, there was no time for popular culture. Yeah, yeah, that's that's me right now. There's always people like you heard about the show, and I'm like, no, yeah. sounds interesting. I'll probably never watch it because I don't have time. I get that too. People always at work asking me, like, I've seen the latest thing. It's like, nah, man, I'm going home from here and I'm going to be at my computer writing all night. I'm not going to watch whatever show you're talking about. Yeah, I, I, I'll check out a couple of movies here and there, but usually I'm uh, watching whatever my kids watch. And these days I'm, I'm working about 13 hours a day. And when I'm not working, uh, I, I try to squeeze in enough time to spend with my kids and with my wife so that we have a little bit of that. So, um, yeah, I, I totally understand the way life can take over. But uh, yeah, um, really good advice. Uh, you know, being be yourself, do you, however you want to say it. Um, and uh, and make sure you believe in what you're writing and that you have buy into what you're what you're doing, because people uh, are sooner going to take to a passionate story than something that seems uh, passionless, I guess. Well, yeah, makes sense right. to me. Lee, where can uh, people, I know that you're not uh, big on social media. Um, I'm not actually, I don't even, I don't know if you're really, uh, there are a couple of reader groups on social media where people uh, are talking about your work. One of them that I actually started and another one that was uh, there before I started this one. Uh, sometimes they kind of intermingle. Um, but where can people find you if they want to connect, if they want to know more about your work, if they want to um, read other stories that you may have written or blogs or anything like that? Because I know you've done quite a, a large amount of writing. Uh, basically, I don't do Facebook. I don't do Instagram. What I do do is I have a website. Uh, it's L.E. Modisett Jr., all run together, no punctuation, dot com. And um, on that, I generally post blogs twice a week. Um, I answer comment. I answer any questions questions that people make in the comments on it and it's got all of my books um and I'll, and they're broken down by series on it um i post news interests whenever there's something newsworthy which isn't always that obvious i mean publication newsworthy and um that's pretty much where i am um i also have a forum on the internet database uh, where i'll answer questions awesome well uh, Lee, it's been uh, amazing talking to you tonight, and I wish you uh, all the best of luck. We've, I'm uh, sure I speak for the other guys as well, but uh, on everything that you've got coming out, um, really, really excited to um, continue uh, following up where Isolate started because uh, it's really cool and it's it's always awesome to to start a new series of yours and uh, see where you go and. Uh, find the similarities between the between your other books and uh the differences because just like imager had similarities in writing to recluse but also many differences um you can find those in this as well and it's always it's always exciting and fascinating to read a, a brand new series of yours so wishing you the best of luck with that and uh, all the best 
Thank you very much. I really appreciate your having me on. Yeah, thank you for joining That's us. That's great. Have a good night. You too. Hey, everybody. James here. I just want to thank you for listening to this episode. We had a great time talking to Lee, and we hope you enjoyed listening to him as well. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode or any of our others, I would encourage you to leave a review, maybe tell a friend. Uh, every little bit helps and helps us keep this podcast going. Uh, if there's any other guests that you would like to hear us talk to, please let us know. Uh, we can always reach out, see if we can get them on. We hope you have a great new year, and we're looking forward to all the things to come. But in the meantime, go read a book. <laughs>